Welcome to the show, folks. We've been doing a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and last time I left you hanging, I told you about 12 verses that we're going to cover in this session that are so controversial that to this day, folks, many Christians believe that these verses have no place, no place at all in our Bibles. And they all have their various reasons for them. I just want you to know up front, though, I'm not one of those Christians who believes that. I'm going to try to make their case for them, and I'm going to make mine. But before I get into either side, let's just dive in. In our last session, John chapter 7, Jesus made his way into the temple to teach, which was a big deal, folks, because it was the climax of the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody knew that the religious leaders were seeking Jesus to kill him. And he was nowhere to be found. Everybody was wondering, is he going to show up? Is he going to stay hidden? And then not only does he show up, he marches straight into the temple and begins to teach. Well, the Pharisees were not so anxious to go in there and stop him because the people were listening and they were being swayed by him. They were listening and being convinced. Some of them said to themselves, you know what? Is it possible that the leaders are trying to kill him because he really is the Christ? He really is the Messiah. Well, that upset the Pharisees, so they sent officers out. They didn't go themselves. They sent officers out to arrest him and bring him back to them. Well, they send the officers out. The officers get out there. They're so impressed by what they're hearing that they return back to the Pharisees empty-handed. They said, what are you doing? Where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? And the officers said, no man has ever spoke like this man. So the Pharisees said, ah, have you been deceived too? None of us leaders and Pharisees think he's the Messiah. He hasn't fooled us. Why can't you be smart like us? And as for that crowd, in the original Greek, it was very derogatory. It would be equivalent to somebody today using the phrase trailer trash, rabble. As for that crowd out there, none of them know the law. They haven't studied like we have. They don't know what we know. No prophet comes out of Galilee. Well, guess who happens to be there? Nicodemus. And he sticks up for Jesus and says, You know what? Is it in our law that a man should be judged before he's heard, knows what he does? They answered to him, Are you also from Galilee? You search the scriptures and see for yourself that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then the very next verse, this is verse 53, the last verse in John chapter 7. This begins the controversy. This is the verse, along with the next 11 verses, that many believe do not belong in the Bible. After this huge discussion, verse 53, it says, And then every man went unto his own house. Chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman who had been taken in the act of adultery. And when they set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commands us that such a person should be stoned to death, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have just cause to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he didn't hear them. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said to them, He who among you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last, until Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up and saw none but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? 
She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus said, according to verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Folks, for all intents and purposes, as far as the law is concerned, this woman was condemned. She was sentenced to the death penalty. At least that's what she deserved, according to the law of Moses. And Jesus just postponed her judgment. Now, some people think that he forgave her and pardoned her of her sin, but that's not the case. He postponed judgment. We find that out in verse 15. But because it sounds like Jesus is overlooking the sin of adultery, it's caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. Especially since so many have taken that line out of context, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. If you really think that that statement is Jesus introducing a new doctrine that we should follow, and that's what some people think it is, if you follow that to its conclusion, you'll realize it's total anarchy. You'd have to do away with police, get rid of the judge, get rid of the courts, get rid of everything. Get rid of parents. Let everybody run wild because let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus wants Christians to hold each other accountable, folks. That's in Matthew chapter 18. So this is not Jesus' endorsement for total moral anarchy. Other similar passages have been taken out of context, such as when Jesus said, Judge not, lest ye be judged. We cover that in Matthew chapter 7. But this here, to be honest, folks, is difficult to place back into context because Jesus actually says to the woman, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If you don't keep reading, you get the impression that her sin has been overlooked. So throughout the centuries, many scholars would read this and scratch their head, and they didn't know what to do with it, and then they found a way out in the 80s when people started investigating earlier manuscripts to come up with new English translations. They found some manuscripts that edited out the last verse of chapter 7 and the first 11 verses of chapter 8. And they just thought, that's it. This is the mystery has been solved. These verses were never supposed to be here. Somebody put it in here later. No wonder it didn't make any sense. Thank goodness we figured out the mystery. Only problem with that is that all of those earlier manuscripts that they started to refer to were later discovered to be frauds. They were written by the Gnostics of the first century who specifically edited scripture in the attempts to either de-emphasize the doctrine of grace or to de-emphasize the doctrine of Jesus being deity. As a matter of fact, Paul himself had to deal with them. He had to send the Thessalonian Christians a second letter refuting a lot of things that they had been told in a letter that they thought was from Paul. Paul wrote to them his famous first letter, what's in our Bible, 1 Thessalonians, but then a forgery had been sent to the Thessalonians in Paul's name. And Paul's rebuke of all of that false doctrine is recorded in what's in our Bibles as 2 Thessalonians. So biblical forgeries were circulating in the first century. Well, 2,000 years later, a bunch of people in the 1980s stumble upon all these documents that they thought were earlier, more reliable manuscripts. Turns out it was the circulation of the Gnostics. And despite this discovery, for whatever reason, most of our Bibles still have these little bitty notes in the bottom of our pages that says, earlier manuscripts did not contain these verses. Folks, ignore that every time you see it, because I'm telling you, everything we have in our Bible is the Bible. It's God's Word. 
Now, there are a few translational errors here and there because English is an inferior language than Greek and Hebrew, and that's just inevitable whenever you translate anything into English. That's why I'm a strong advocate of having more than one English translation. But as far as there being deliberate deception concerning added passages or passages that have been taken away, whenever you see notes that suggest such a thing, folks, it's not true. There's only one exception to that that I can think of, and it's not even worth mentioning. And if you were to look at these 12 verses, remove them from the text, and try to read this without those 12 verses in there, you'd wind up with a continuity problem. You go back to John chapter 7, verse 52. This is the last verse that everybody says is okay. The Pharisees are debating among themselves what's to be done about Jesus. Nicodemus just stood up for him. If you cut out those 12 verses, this is how it reads. Nicodemus says, Is it in our law that a man should be judged before he's heard, knows what he does? They answered to him, Are you also from Galilee? You search the scriptures and see for yourself that no prophet arises from Galilee. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What? Huh? What's that got to do with no prophet coming out of Galilee? And besides, I thought, when did Jesus show up? I thought the Pharisees were angry because the officers didn't bring Jesus back with them. Well, now all of a sudden he's there saying, I'm the light of the world. Well, what? What? Josh, it's just switching focus from the Pharisees back onto the crowd. No. Look at verse 13. It says, Whereupon the Pharisees said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. So the Pharisees and Jesus are addressing each other. The problem is, is where are they? Is Jesus with the Pharisees talking with them in their chambers? And if so, when did he get there? See, something's been cut. We're missing some information here. These 12 verses are so devastating to the forces of darkness that they have gone out of their way to try to remove them from our Bible. So that should cause you to want to look at these verses more closely. Because thanks to the Holy Spirit, these 12 verses have been preserved for us in spite of everything Satan has tried to do for the past 2,000 years to remove them. So let's go back to the verse that everyone agrees belongs. We'll start from there. And then we're going to read the next 12 verses, one verse at a time. And let's see what's really going on here. Let's don't jump to any conclusions. John chapter 7, verse 52. The Pharisees respond to Nicodemus and say, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look for yourself, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Verse 53. And everyone left to their own house. So the debate was ended. The day was over. They went home. Chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. A lot of people miss this. Jesus was homeless, folks. There were times where he stayed with Peter at his place, but after traveling to Jerusalem to attend this feast, he had no place to stay. So now, even as an adult, there's still no room at the inn. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So that's important to understand, first of all, a day has closed. Jesus taught in the temple. It made the Pharisees furious. They attempted to have him arrested. They failed. There was debate privately in their chambers. There was no resolution to the debate. Jesus is still a free man. And a new day is dawning. Verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And folks, the Pharisees and the scribes, this must have driven them to the point of literal insanity. They must have been livid. Because here's day two. 
They had all day yesterday to stop this, and now it's happening again. And because of their own blindness from arrogance and religious pride, they probably took this personal. He's getting in our face. He's right here in the middle of the temple. Right after the Feast of Tabernacles, no less. The whole country's out here. This has got to stop. We've got to stone him today. Nicodemus, you want a trial? I'll give him a trial. We're going to put him to the test right here and right now. Nicodemus probably said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, didn't you tell us that when you spoke with him, he said that God sent him into the world to save the world and not condemn it? Yeah, he said that. Yeah, we've heard other reports of him saying similar things, that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Yeah, that's what he said. Well, we've also heard reports that he said that he did not come to overthrow the law, but to fulfill the law. We even have him saying that not one jot or tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Yeah, so, well, he can't have it both ways. This false prophet is telling everybody what they want to hear. He tells the righteous that he has come to fulfill the law, but then he tells wicked sinners that he hasn't come to judge or condemn the world, but to save it. He can't have it both ways. We're going to force him to make up his mind. Right here and right now, today, in front of the whole world, Verse 3, And the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law says that such a person should be stoned to death, but what do you say? Now folks, let's just soak this in. Jesus is in the middle of the temple teaching. He's got a crowd of people around He's probably teaching the Sermon on the Mount a second time for people who didn't hear it the first time. And here come these religious leaders dragging a woman through the crowd in broad daylight in public, throws her down like a piece of trash right in front of Jesus, in front of all these people. They say to him, Teacher, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Really? If the woman was caught in the act, then the man was also caught, so where is he? Verse 5, they say, Now Moses in the law commands us that such a person should be stoned to death, but what do you say? Really? Moses in the law said that the man was supposed to be put to death too, so where is he? Where is he? Verse 6 says, They said this to him, testing him, that they might find just cause to accuse him. And since the man isn't there to be convicted of anything, folks, some have suggested that this woman was set up. And the man was there, but as one of her accusers, instead of taking the blame with her. Now, we don't know if that's true. It's just an interesting theory that seems to fit the facts. Where is the man? J. Vernon McGee simplified it when he pointed out that they weren't really interested in stoning this woman. They wanted to stone Jesus. That's what this is all about. So as a test, they've thrown this woman down at Jesus' feet. They say to him, Teacher, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commands us that such a person should be stoned to death, but what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might find just cause to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he didn't even hear them. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, folks, you know what I find very interesting? John doesn't record for us what it was that Jesus was writing on the ground. 
But there's a couple of very interesting theories that are floating around out there. The first one suggests that Jesus was fulfilling Jeremiah 17, verse 13, which says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake you shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Isn't that a very interesting verse for Jeremiah? It's a very interesting theory, too, because Jesus just got through saying to them the day before, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Well, these Pharisees are not coming to him for living water. They're coming to kill him. They've rejected the living water as Jeremiah predicted. So now, is it possible that Jesus was writing their names in the earth? in the ground. Pretty interesting theory. But there's another good theory that suggests something even more cool, and it's my opinion that this is a cooler theory, a more awesome theory. Since the Holy Spirit loves to reveal secrets to us through symbolism, I find it interesting that we are told that Jesus wrote on the ground with his finger. There's only one other place in the entire Bible that I'm aware of, folks, where it records the finger of God writing anything, and that's the Ten Commandments into stone in Exodus 31. Remember that famous line, written with the finger of God? Wouldn't that be something if it was the Ten Commandments that Jesus was writing out on the ground as the Pharisees were demanding Jesus answer their questions about following the Mosaic Law? Is that why Jesus said, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone at her? And I get goosebumps when I imagine Jesus stooping down, writing with his finger into the dirt, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then going on. We don't know that's what he was writing, folks, but whatever it was, it was something that combined with his own statement caused the Pharisees to do the following in verse 9. It says, They which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, until Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. The tradition was that the first stone was thrown by the eldest, and then the next eldest, and so on, which is what makes this so poetic. For beginning with the eldest one by one, they backed off until no one was left but the woman. Verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up and saw none but the woman... He said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus spoke to them all again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, folks, what do you suppose is the reason why Satan would want these verses removed? It's because it is the pivotal foundation of what grace is all about. How can Jesus fulfill the law and not condemn this woman for adultery at the same time? It's because he's on his way to the cross to suffer condemnation on her behalf paying the death penalty for her. He didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. He meant that literally. 
Sentencing her to death would have been enforcing the law. That's not the same thing as fulfilling it. He did not rewrite the law. He did not condone adultery. He postponed her condemnation. And the reason for that is because Jesus did not come to condemn anyone. He didn't give her a break that he's not given others. He said that countless times. I have not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. His mission is one of salvation. The cross did not catch God by surprise. That was why he came. And that is why the devil has gone out of his way to get these verses removed from the Bible. Because, folks, this is driving the point home. There's no such thing as a person who is too dirty for salvation. There's a lot of people out there who are not saved today because they think they've got to clean their life up first. Folks, if we could clean our lives up, then we wouldn't need salvation. Well, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. Did you commit a sin worse than this woman committing adultery? What about Paul the Apostle who wrote most of our New Testament who also had a career murdering Christians before God straightened him out? Are you worse than him? I don't care who you are or what you've done. Jesus has postponed your condemnation so you will accept his full provision to pay for your sins. There isn't anything in the Bible that says this only applies to little sins from good people. It applies to everyone who believes in, adheres to, and relies upon Jesus to be your full provision to pay for your sins. I mean, come on, the song Amazing Grace. The lyrics are not Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a fairly decent person with good intentions like me. It's Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the whole point of this story, folks. This woman wasn't guilty of working on the Sabbath or stealing bread or cheating on her taxes. She was guilty of adultery, which is a symbol of all sin, really. All sins are nothing but betrayal and adultery against God. And by the Mosaic law, which God endorses, all of us deserve the death penalty. Every one of us, folks. Well, I don't think I deserve the death penalty. You're not the judge. What you think you deserve doesn't have any bearing whatsoever. You didn't write the law, and you're not the judge. When we start talking about what we deserve, that's like somebody living in an insane asylum trying to define what sanity is. Just because you're not as wicked and evil as somebody else doesn't make you pure. And let's be honest, folks, and I'll be the first one. In my flesh, I am no better than anybody. If God wasn't looking, if I could get away with it, and if there were no consequences for my actions, I could be just as wicked as anybody out there. And you are too. This woman who was caught in the act of adultery is a symbol for the Ecclesia, the Bride of Christ. She's an unnamed woman. There was an unnamed woman in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She was symbolic of the Ecclesia, the church. And she was guilty of adultery. Nobody seems to dispute those passages. Remember, Jesus told her to her face, you've been married five times and the man you're with now isn't your husband. But she got saved. She didn't get cleaned up first. Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you living water. Matthew chapter 9 verse 20 had an unnamed Gentile woman. Matthew 15 21 had an unnamed Gentile woman. All of these women were symbolic of the church. People who are dead in their trespasses and sins. People who have nothing to bring to the table. They're not even Jewish. But because of their faith, they're saved. Well, now, Josh, I don't see any evidence that this woman who was caught in the act of adultery was saved, that she had any faith. Really? 
Look at it closely, folks. The Pharisees called Jesus teacher throughout the whole narrative. What did she call him? Lord. When Jesus had lifted up and saw none but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice Jesus didn't put himself on equal footing with men in that statement. Has no man condemned you? She says, No man, Lord. Then he says, Neither do I condemn you. Every time you see an unnamed woman being healed or forgiven of sin from faith, she is a symbol of the church. And this case is no different. By the way, in this narrative, she's called woman five times. And five symbolically represents a full provision. That's what grace is, folks. She deserved the death penalty. She was also walking in darkness. But then Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now the Pharisees came right after that and said, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. That's verse 13. They're still trying to catch Jesus in contradictions because earlier he had said something to that effect. He said that he never testifies of himself, but only testifies that which his father sent him to testify. So once again, they're trying to catch him in contradictions. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So then they say, wait a minute, you can't say that because you said you never testify of yourself. You don't ever bear witness of yourself, I thought. Actually, what Jesus said was that he never testifies on his own accord. He only testifies that which his father sent him to testify. So if his father tells him to say, I am the light of the world, he's testifying according to what his father would have him say. But they weren't listening. You just said you're the light of the world. You just testified of yourself. You said you wasn't going to do that. Jesus responds to them and says in verse 14, Even if I did bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from. Neither do you know where I'm going. What is that, folks? <laughs> Jesus was not with the Pharisees in their private meeting last night. But Jesus knows their heart. He knew all about their controversial debate about whether or not a prophet comes from Galilee. Search the scriptures yourself, they said. Remember? He came from Galilee. No prophet comes out of Galilee. Jesus says, you don't know where I came from. Verse 15. Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now see, this is proof, folks. He's trying to point out he did not forgive this woman. He postponed judgment. He didn't say guilty or innocent. He tells them, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet, if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone. I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one of the two bearing testimony concerning myself. And my Father who sent me, he also testifies about me. Verse 19, then they said to him, Where is your father? Now, folks, this is getting dirty now. This is really getting heated. Where is your father? They're implying he's a bastard. They've heard all about the rumors about him being born of a virgin. Yeah, likely story. Your mother slept around. You don't know who your father is. They said to him, Where is your father? 
Jesus answered, You know my Father as little as you know me. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Verse 20, These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Absolutely incredible, folks. God's in absolute control. Verse 21, Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will seek me and will die in your sin. For where I'm going, you cannot come. Now he said this before, folks. He's making a prophecy, not a distant prophecy, but one that's about to be fulfilled just around the bend. I am going away. He's talking about his death and resurrection. I am going away and you will seek me. And that's true that they did. After he had resurrected, the Pharisees tried to find his body. They couldn't find it. You will seek me and will die in your sin. For where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jewish religious leaders said, Will he kill himself because he says, Where I go, you cannot come? What's that all about? Verse 23, And he said to them, You are from beneath. They should know the prophecies about his death and resurrection. But they asked themselves in verse 22, Will he kill himself because he says, Where I go, you can't come? So then Jesus says to them in verse 23, He says, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins because unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have much to say about you and to judge and condemn. But he who sent me is true, and I tell the world only the things that I have heard from him. Verse 27, They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father, God the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. He has never left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 30, And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who did believe in him, He said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Folks, I quote that a lot because it is one of the pivotal points of my life. I wasn't free until I stopped listening to all the voices out there about religion and started abiding in God's word. Then I became free. And that's the belt of truth, the first and most important foundational piece of armor listed in the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. But now back to the Pharisees who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who are there trying to trap him. Verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone, so how can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever. But a son does abide forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, then you would do the works of Abraham. 
Instead, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you nothing but the truth which he heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We're not born of fornication. Now, folks, if you disagreed with me earlier when I said to you that they were calling Jesus a bastard and his mother a slut, you should agree with me now. Because now it is in black and white, verse 41. Jesus said, You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. I didn't come of my own accord. He sent me. Why don't you understand my speech? It's because you are not able to listen to my word. Because you are of your father, the devil. And it's the desires of your father that you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you won't believe me. Verse 46, Jesus says, Which of you can convict me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you don't hear because you are not of God. Then the Jewish religious leaders answered and said to him, Are we not right when we say that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? There they go again, folks. How many times have they done this? When they realize that they've lost all argument, that they have no leg to stand on, then they resort to accusing him of being demon-possessed. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. On the contrary, I honor and reverence my Father. It's you who dishonors me. However, I'm not in search of honor for myself. There is one who looks after that. He seeks my glory, and he is the judge. But most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone observes my teaching and keeps my word, he will never see death. Isn't that something, folks? Even in the midst of all of this, he's still trying to promote the gospel to them. He's trying to get them saved. Then the Jews said to him, verse 52, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and so are the prophets. Yet you say, if a man keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus said, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is your God. But you have not known him, but I have. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham ever was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Folks, if they didn't understand it up until this last verse, verse 58, they understood it then. Jesus was declaring to them. He's been doing it all throughout this chapter, but it wasn't sinking in. He's claiming to be the voice from the burning bush. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham ever was, I am. Past, present, future, all the same to me. But that phrase, I am, that's one of the titles, one of the names of God. 
the great I am. That's why they took up stones to throw at him, because at that moment they realized he's worse than a false prophet. This guy claims to be God. A lot of people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. People who say that haven't read the Bible. If Jesus never claimed to be God, then the Pharisees wouldn't have killed him. This is one of my most favorite chapters in the Bible because it really gets into a heated argument. And all throughout this chapter, we see Jesus being one, two, three steps ahead of the most intelligent religious leaders on the planet at that time. And this wasn't some little cushy debate about predestination versus free will. They wanted him dead. They were there to kill him. But they went out there thinking he was a false prophet. They didn't realize just how bad it was. All throughout this chapter, Jesus has been trying to tell them. Verse 12, I am the light of the world. Verse 18, I am one of the two who bears witness of myself. Verse 23, I am from above. I am not of this world. Verse 24, you shall die in your sins if you don't believe that I am. Verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am. Folks, they should have picked up on it, but Jesus wasn't being obvious enough for them. Their hatred and blindness was so thick he couldn't get through. So finally he lowers the bomb on them in verse 58, after they asked him how he could have possibly seen Abraham, since he's not even 50 years old. He said, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham ever was, I am. That pushed him over the edge, and they picked up stones to kill him. But Jesus hid himself, went out into the temple, going through the midst of the crowd, and so passed by. I notice it says that he hid himself first. Uh, folks, this is colorful language, poetic. It could be he got lost in the crowd, but since he's the center of attention, I don't know how that's possible. It is my own personal opinion, I can't prove it, that he slipped into a hyperspace. This is the second time he's done this, getting away from people who were trying to kill him. Just disappear into the crowd, slip through a hyperspace, and all of a sudden he's not there. He's moved on, he's somewhere else. We're going to stop it right there, folks, because that was pretty much a crescendo. Next time we'll get into John chapter 9 and uh, just pretty much start where we left off. Until then, we are out of here. You take care.